Man, God is so good. God is so good. If you think back over the last two years and everything that has happened in this country, literally the only thing that we can be left to say is that God is so good. The psalmist would say, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. And he would repeat it. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Psalms 136, it goes through it over and over and over again. And he starts recounting the events that he had. He would say that you broke us out of Egypt. And then he would say, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. And he would talk about how he kept them in the wilderness and how their shoes didn't wear out and how their food was never in short supply. And then he would say, oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Every single thing that he said, it always came back to one thing. It came back to the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and the fact that his character, who he is, the work that he is doing, the thing that he has started, that endures forever. And there's a confidence that we're supposed to get from that. There's a strength that we're supposed to garnish from that. There's a power that we're supposed to walk away whenever we are able to look back at life and all of the times that God delivered over and over and over and over and over again. And that's supposed to be the strength that we take into the next trouble time. The old folks say, you're either walking into a storm, you're either leaving a storm, or you're too young to know the difference. (laughs) It's only a matter of time before life leans on us, right? And as the believer, it's really interesting because when you look at the words in Scripture, there's this expectation about how we are supposed to respond in those moments. It talks about us in such a way of empowerment, such a way of strength. It's almost supernatural, it's almost surreal when it makes statements like that we've been endowed with the mind of Christ. When it says things like, let this spirit, that the same spirit that was in Jesus, the same spirit that raised him from the dead, the claim of our book is that that spirit is in us. Wow. Just think about that. Think about everything that the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to do. And our book says that that spirit, that mind, that authority, that witness is literally who we are. But like most things in life, there's a problem, right? (laughs) Because it's who it says that we are, but life is the process of us running for who God has called us to be. And one of the most important things that we can constantly do on that process is we have to evaluate ourselves. We have to ask honest and transparent questions. Honesty is the greatest gift that we can give to ourselves. It's such a beautiful gift. It'll break down walls, knock down barriers, send you on journeys that you never thought you can go on, open up doors to new avenues of life that you didn't even think that it was possible for you to explore. The moment that we are able to be transparent and honest about where we are versus who God says that we can become, and we start to take that journey boldly. It's a powerful gospel. We don't serve a weak God. 
We don't have a weak gospel. We don't walk in weakness because we are literally empowered with the spirit of power. And God told us the closing words of Matthew. He says, look, all authority has been given unto me. I've got it all now. But you've got to go. And everything that happens in this place, everything that manifests in this world, every good and perfect gift from the Lord, it's all going to come through you. It's our job. It's our mandate. It is literally who we are. So I find myself asking questions because I want more Jesus. I want more Jesus. Like, we value everything according to, the, to money, right? So we'll get an ounce of gold and we'll say an ounce of gold is worth this much. An ounce of silver is worth this. Can you imagine the price of an ounce of God? Could we even value it? And yet men have conquered nations, done horrific things for a little shiny piece of metal. And I, I ask myself often, like, where would I be able to go? What would I be able to do if in my mind and in my heart, my value system for an ounce of God would trump my value system for my most precious thing? How bad do I want Jesus? Honestly, how bad do I want Jesus? How bad do I want to act like Jesus act? How bad do I want to love my enemies? How bad do I want to be pure in my innermost being? Not just to look, but Jesus says that it goes far deeper to the innermost workings of my heart. Like literally and honestly, how bad do I want it? And if God truly loved me, and he wanted the best for me. And the best thing that he can offer me is to operate in his image and his likeness, to be one with him, to be in his authority, to be in his power, to be living life like Jesus lived. What would he be willing to let me go through if it would help me turn my everything to him? You ever thought about that? Where are my parents at? Who's a parent? Mike, Mike, you know you. You need to raise two hands. <laughs> All the children you got, boy. <laughs> Parents know this. Parents are very acquainted. There's times where we have to let rain hurt because we see that the situation is going to refine his character. There's times that we have to let him walk through things that in every other situation, I, I would want to jump in there for him and save him and say no. But rain is hard-headed. He will know he's wrong. He will know you're right but he wants to prove it so bad. He's like that bee in the bee movie. Maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time. <laughs> but I love him enough to know that there's certain lessons in life, there's certain things in life that are only refined through the fire. There's certain realities of ourselves that we're not going to know until life gets tough. And if God loved us and his goal was to purify us to our greatest level of purity, a good, good father has to let us walk through those times. If you can't say, ouch, say amen. 
Amen. There's a couple of, couple of Pentecostals in here. I love it. <laughs> a couple of Pentecostals. One of the greatest places that examples this authority that God has given us, this power that he's created us to walk in, this mentality that we have been endowed with in the midst of tough times is in the book of James. Because tough times are here. Tough times are here. Let's just call a spade a spade. Life is leaning on us in so many different directions. We all in this room have something that we're dealing with. We all in this room have stuff that we're struggling with internally, plus the exterior things. The stuff that we're praying for, for the people in Afghanistan. The turmoil in the country, the race relations, we can't get along. The instability in our government. Everywhere. The book of James presents this picture for us about understanding the mind of God during some of these times. It opens like this. It says, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersions. And he says, greetings. That's the same word for rejoice. So he's talking to people that are scattered everywhere. In history, this is almost after James, the brother of John, sons of thunder, He's just been killed. And so they're just getting on to this thing saying, hey, people like it when we kill Christians. Like, this is a cool thing. Like, let's go with that. And so they're dispersed. They're they're spreading out because it's not good to be in a group of people at this point in time. And so he's writing letters to the 12 tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. These were the early believers that were dispersed. And he says, rejoice. None of that makes sense. (laughs) I'm running for my life, James. What am I rejoicing about? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The King James says, when you fall into diverse temptations. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And I wanted to make sure that I was thorough. So I looked up nothing in the Greek. I looked up nothing in the Hebrew, and it still means the same thing, no thing. It says nothing is lacking. And amazingly, he begins with this statement because he says, my brethren, that's us, that is me and you. He says, count it all joy. And that word for count is an amazing word. It's amazing because the word carries authority. It's not a basic text. The Greek word literally means to command with official authority, to have rule over, to be strengthened, to lead. It's a word that's used over and over and over again in Scripture in very authoritative context. James is saying that when life starts to lean on us and stuff starts to happen, there's something up here that God has given us that will allow us to be in these situations and operate differently from how the world responds. There's something that he's given us that is different That the way that we come out, the way that we look at it, the way that we respond, the way that we manifest the glory of God and the power that's been deposited within us, it will be in such a nature that we will be commanding our situation, but our situation will not be commanding us. We will be in the circumstances, but not limited to it. Our understanding is not limited to the things that are happening around us. He says, command it, count it. 
Take authority. Be strong. It's who you are. Count it all joy. Step two was to go through all the translations and make sure it said it all. Because <laughs> we've been through some stuff. James, God, how do you expect us to go through it all? Not some of it, it all. And to be able to have this mental dispensation to where when the business is not working right or we're seeing things in life that just burden us in crazy, incredible ways. We're having job issues. Like how can I find joy there? Where do I get the power? The Bible is full of some crazy stories. This particular one, it was right when the Sanhedrin was looking at the the disciples and they were trying to come down on them very hard for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And it says that they took them and they beat them right after deciding not to keep them, not to kill them. Gamaliel saved their lives. And it says that when they left the presence of the council, right after getting beat, it says that they were rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And look how they responded. It said, and every day, this is right after being told, we will kill you if you keep preaching. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is Christ. I think that when God said it all, he meant it all. Count it all joy, it says, when you fall. James begins to describe how this situation is going to look for us. That word for fall, it literally means to be surrounded by. It's a situation where you can't get out of it. You turn left, you're in trouble. You turn right, there's still trouble. You turn forward, there's still trouble. You turn back, there's still trouble. He's saying literally, there are situations, there are times where we're going to be surrounded. The word for diverse means manifold in nature. It means manifold in character, that it's going to hit us from all of these different ways, and it's going to be this constant little attack, this constant little shifting, and every direction that we might look, it seems like there's no way out, and then James is still telling us that there is a joy to be found in that. He says diverse temptations. The word for temptations, it means a trial. The root word literally means a test. How many of us have to take a test just to do our professions? JJ, what are all the things you had to go through? <laughs> all the things. But you know why? You know what makes a test important? Even the seats that you guys are sitting in would not be there had they not passed test after test after test. I was an educator. I had to take so many tests before they would put me in front of children. Pilots have to take so many tests before they will trust a pilot with a plane full of people to fly across oceans and across the world. Because tests are necessary for anything that wants to be trusted. Tests are necessary for anything that wants to be trusted. And the greater the weight that's going to be placed on the object, 
the greater the test that's going to be required to authenticate that it's ready, that it's ready to bear what they're trying to bear. Bear, you're trying to carry it, that you're ready to be responsible enough to be in front of children, that you're ready to be able to fly people across this world without having somebody sitting over your shoulder. A test is necessary, and we realize it in everywhere in life. There's nowhere that we look. We have background checks before we let them get in front of children, and then we have systems that are in place to try to check them and to check them and to check them and to check them again. And James says these things are going to be diverse. And then here's where he releases the power to us. Always want the power. He says that the reason that you can count it joy is because there's something that we're supposed to know that nobody else knows. There's a reality that we're supposed to operate in that the world does not operate in. There's a framework of life that we're supposed to see and think and be a part of that is so foreign to them that we can be in the same situations but have a total different temperament. We can rejoice after getting beaten because we were counted worthy of such a thing. He says, you have to know this. The Hebrew word for know is yada. Yes, this was written in the Greek, but it was written by he. Yada means intimacy. It's the same word that's used. It would say, and Adam knew Eve and she bore him a child. It's more than just a head knowledge. It's something, it's literally to be a part of who you are. And James is saying, when, when you catch this, when you get this in your head, there is literally nothing that you can walk through in this life that you do not have the authority to be able to command the fruit of the Spirit that God said, that you can bear joy, that you can bear peace, that you can bear all of the things that God promised, and it is totally non-restrictive based on our situation. Who would like to be able to have peace all the time? What about an ounce of joy anytime you wanted it? What about patience with the unlovable? The most hardest people to work with, but you're able to have the same patience that God had with us when he was waiting for us to turn from our sins and to turn from our wickedness and to live for him and to walk for him and to desire him and to be with him and to love like he loved. Knowing this, here it is. It says that when you're being tried, when your faith is being tried, there's something God is working inside of you. He changed the focus. Look at it. When we're in a bad situation, what do we focus on? The situation, right? When we're in a bad situation, we focus on the situation. James says, no, stop. That's going to make you unstable. That's going to make you go all over the place. You won't be able to keep your bases. You won't be able to manifest the fruits. You won't be able to do what God is wanting you to do. Don't focus on the situation. Focus on what you know that God is doing inside you. There's a work that has to happen in each and every one of us. Jesus did not die so that we can stay sinners. Jesus did not die so that we can stay broken. Jesus did not die so that we can stay weak and without authority. He died to restore to us the covenant of Abraham. He died to restore to us the authority 
that Adam had in the garden. He died to restore to us the very character and nature of God. And every aspect of God's character is one choice away, followed by another choice, followed by another choice, followed by another choice. And now we get to see a fruit of the Spirit. We're on patience. And James said that one of the places where patience is formed is when we get put in situations to where we can't do anything. Wow. That one sucks. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you want a better answer than that? Like, <laughs> I would want a better answer than that. I don't want you to tell me that the situations go surround me. I don't want, no. I want to, James and John, I want to call down fire and destroy, like, give me, no, that's not the right answer. But teacher, you failed. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith is working one of the fruits of the Spirit, and that's called patience. And he says, but let patience have her perfect work. And here's a statement that we're not comfortable with. He says that you may be perfect and entire, wanting no thing, nothing. And this Greek word, if we could wrap our brains around this one word, I almost wrote a whole book on this one word. This Greek word means teleos. So when we, we have statements, we'll say like practice makes perfect. That's not true. I can practice wrong <laughs> and it'll make me perfectly wrong, <laughs> right? Perfect practice makes us better. That's our walk with the Lord. Perfect practice makes us better. That's it. Little step by little step by little step. Here a little, there a little. Concept upon concept, precept upon precept. And the Greek word there literally means to walk in maturity. When we think of perfect, we think of I'm without flaw. So when Jesus makes these crazy statements, he says, be ye teleos as our Father in heaven is terios, be ye perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, we say, he didn't really mean perfect because we're thinking without flaw. He's not saying be without flaw. He's saying there is an expectation of maturity that each and every one of us is called to grow through and that there's times where life is going to push these things out of us because if we were honest, most of us are not going to get it any other way. We're not going to willingly throw that level of patience out there, that level of love, that level of self-control. But because God loves us, he, the Bible says that all things work together for the good. That's the good and the bad. And in both of these areas, he's working with us because he wants to purge us and purify us of our impurity so that when the world looks at us, they don't see us. They see him working through us. They see his character manifesting through us. They see his unceasing love pouring out of us, his incredible patience pouring out of us, the wisdom and knowledge of God pouring out of us. And it's all because he has refined us in this amazing way that sets us apart from everything normal. 
It's one of the most powerful things that he gave us. You go back and you read Viktor Frankl's book about them when they were being tortured. He was a Jew and he was in the Holocaust. And and he says, once I realized they couldn't break our minds, we were unstoppable. They became unstoppable. There was nothing that they could do. Now, if a Jew can tap into that without a relationship with Christ, what can we become when we tap in in our minds, when we have the mind of Christ towards our situations, the mind of Christ towards what's happening in the world? How should we look compared to the world? United power, that's how we should look. One group. standing on biblical principles because it's not what we believe. It's literally who we have become. Jesus even tells us when he was leaving, he says that in this world, you're going to have stuff happen. You're going to have tribulations. You can't get away from it. Don't try to run from the pain. Use it. Don't try to run from the bad situations. Let it refine us. As I was thinking about this concept of suffering, I started to ask myself the question, like, what does the Bible say about the greatest moment in suffering in all of human history? Jesus, our perfect example, Jesus on the cross, Jesus laying down his life for us, Jesus stretched out, bloody and broken, saying, not my will, but your will be done. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's our example. The Bible literally says that he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death. The Bible literally says that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. Wow. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And here we go. And being made teleos, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Wow. Paul, his student, followed in his footsteps. Oh, one more on Jesus. Oh, this is so powerful. Jesus modeled it. Count it all joy. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. When we're in situations and life is leaning on us, when we're in situations and we don't feel like we're going to, because it's not the end. It's not the end. We are going to increasingly continue to go through things in this country and in this world that are going to be mentally taxing on us. And if we, if we try to create this picture where we think that we're through everything, you're setting yourself up for failure. But Jesus says that you have to have a global perspective on what God is doing. You have to have an eternal perspective on what God is doing. And what he's trying to do in us is so much more important than what is happening around us. And when we tap into that, there is a joy 
that can be found that is literally undescribable. And we would become untouchable. Paul says, I'm telling you this, but not because I need something. But he says, I have learned to be satisfied with what I have and with whatever happens. Why? He says, I know how to live when I am poor and when I have plenty. I have learned the secret of how to live through any kind of situation. When I have enough to eat or when I am hungry, when I have everything or when I need or when I have nothing, Christ is the one who gives me the strength I need to do whatever I must. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a crazy situation I found as I was going through. This letter is written to the churches at the beginning of Revelations. They were physical places. They were real churches. John was on the island of Patmos, and he was writing the real situations. And he looks at these people, and he says, I have given them your word, and the world hated them because they are not of the world. Oh, no, wrong one. Oh, this is where Jesus literally says that he doesn't want us to leave the world. Isn't that crazy? Like, how many people are running to try to get to heaven? And Jesus was like, no, I pray that they stay there. I mean, you hear people say that I can't wait to get to heaven. And Jesus is like, no, you got work to do. I can't wait to get to Jesus. He says, no, nah, I'm trying to clean you up. Right? We've all heard it. It's the great. But then we look at the very word of Jesus. And what was Jesus focused on? He says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is true. He says, you are left here because I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to refine you into my likeness and my image, the very promise that I gave to you at the beginning. My word cannot return to me void. Everything that I say has to come to pass. I have promised you I will clean you up. You're going to look like me. You're going to act like me, and you're going to respond and live in the authority, the dominion that I have as well. What a beautiful, beautiful promise. Now's the one, the situation. He's sitting there and he's talking to this church, these group of believers. Can you imagine if this is the letter that we receive? Just think about this. We're getting tortured from the God that we serve. We're getting tortured by people. And this is the word from Jesus. Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Wait, stop. No, that wasn't what I wanted. Behold. The devil shall cast some of you in prison. Now we're fact-checking. We're fact-call Facebook up. I need all their fact-checkers. This can't be Jesus speaking. It can't be. That you may be tried and you shall have tribulation 10 days. 10 days? No. 10 minutes. And I'm probably folding. But he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life. He didn't come save them from the situation. And we actually see those physical ruins of those places today. He told them that there's times where your love for me is enough just as Jesus was on the cross. 
There are times where though it's uncomfortable, this is what you need because I'm trying to create in you a clean heart and renew in you a steadfast spirit. I'm trying to renew your mind. I'm trying to get you to think and respond like heaven thinks and responds on the situations that happen on earth. And in doing this, when people see us, it says that they'll see the way that we work, but God will get glory in heaven. It's not about us. It's about the work that he's doing in us and the work that he needs to do through us on this planet. After 400 years of silence, God begins speaking again through Elizabeth and through Zacharias. And I want you to look at the prophecy that he gave when he said, look at the words that Zacharias prophesied. It says that he was filled with the Spirit, and he began to say these things. He said that this was the covenant. This was the promise. This is what God promised to do. This is what God promised to do. He said he promised to show the mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to Abraham, this was the Abrahamic covenant. It says to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. The goal has always been to clean us up, to do his work for his glory, for his majesty, for his might. Period. And in our country, we get in this controversy because there's this side of God where we want him to prosper us and we want him to bless us and we want him to give us stuff. And there's nothing wrong with stuff. The problem is that God will never prioritize possessions over purity. Purity always comes first. Purity always comes first. Why? Because you have to be able to trust the person with the stuff. Because the stuff is only a means to do his will and his work. And if you are not pure, I promise you, money makes good people better and it makes bad people worse. It's not a blessing if it hurts your relationship with Jesus. It's not a blessing if it distracts you from loving God. It's not a blessing if it takes away the majority of your time that you would be spending with our Father for that thing, it is not a blessing. So where do we start, right? Everything's got to have a starting point. And uh, this connects so much with, with Dave's message on the fruits of the Spirit because the fruits of the Spirit are literally the manifestation of a mature believer in Christ. It's all of these different bar graphs that, 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 that we can measure our growth in God in. I can measure how I love. I can measure the amount of joy I have whenever things get. I just went through a situation. I made a $100,000 mistake with my family, and I was broken. I don't come from money. So when I saw all of this stuff happening, and we've got all this resource coming in, like I, I just, I literally was at my school. I fell down on my knees just in tears, crying, like, how could I mess up my wife? How could I mess up? They've trusted me. They trusted me. And I literally could not function for days 
because I kept, I failed. But it was so good for me because I got to see where I was at. That test, I failed. But it was okay because I found a weak point. It's like a chair with three legs and one of them's wobbly. He showed me, I have a wobbly leg. And he says, Isaac, you can't support just this. How can I trust you with more? And then I got to work on myself and go back to the scriptures and see what God said and call a spade a spade and be honest and be truthful about where I am and what I'm doing. So that when it comes back, because it will come back, that I'll be able to stand strong in the Lord. We just lost a child. We had a miscarriage. And it was the most powerful thing to sit in the room with my wife as the doctor rubbed that stuff on her stomach and tell us that it's gone. And we just broke out into song. There is none like you. There's no other name. There is none like you. There's no other name. Doctor was confused. I don't care. Nurse didn't know what to do. I don't care. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, and yet blessed be the name of the Lord. Showed me where I was at. Sometimes you don't know what you really believe about God till you've lost something. Sometimes you don't know what you really believe about God till your faith is tested and you realize that you didn't have the faith for the situation. Life is the refining pot. It has nothing to do with God's love for you. You're not going through stuff because God doesn't love you. Many times we're walking through things because of his deep, unceasing, never-ending love for us and his promise that we would walk in the holiness and righteousness that is equipped to us with Jesus Christ and the very spirit that is dwelling within us. Everything begins with the first fruit of the spirit, and that's love. I found this in my life to be the easiest measure, the one that I'm able to be the most honest about. There was a story where a lawyer stood up and he was testing Jesus and he said to him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, Jesus, the guy replies and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind with, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've, you've, you've answered correctly, right? As I read through that, the most convicting word in that whole passage is, is all. Like, just think about it. All. Wow. All. I remember the day that God showed me that, that he didn't have my whole heart. I was running. I was serving at four or five churches. I was doing all kind of stuff. I was just all over the place. Anybody that asked, you need something to move? I'm moving in Jesus' name. Like, it was crazy. I still have muscles at the time. I don't have them anymore. So don't ask me to move. The answer is, the answer is going to be I'm going to donate towards your moving crew. That's it. <laughs> Unless you can guarantee me you'll heal my back afterwards. We'll, we'll put those things there. 
And I'm sitting in the parking lot one day in Irving, Texas. I remember it as it was yesterday, and I'm, getting my, I'm about to go get a haircut. And the, the, I hear off in my head, Isaac, do you love me? And I don't like that because I know there, that scripture comes, you know, that came with Peter with it right after he had denied Jesus. So now I'm going over, I'm just like, did I mess up that I don't know about? Like, <laughs> is this about to get like really bad? And then the question hit me again, and I kind of get aggravated. I'm like, of course I love you. What do you mean? And I start listing all the things that I'm doing for him. I go to four services on the weekends. At that point in time, I would catch a Saturday night service at the village. I would catch a Sunday morning service at Concord. I would catch the 1050 at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And I would catch the 2 o'clock with Ricky Rush because Ricky Rush was the only pastor I know who was literally liable to do a cartwheel mid-sermon and never stop preaching. It was amazing. <laughs> Dude was just wild. Like you could never fall asleep at a sermon. You'd be nodding. It's 3 o'clock. Hey! Hallelujah! <laughs> Hallelujah! <laughs> And then he hit me with a question that changed my everything. He says, do you love me like you love Kobe? And I'm thinking, Kobe Bryant? That was a stupid question. Of course I love you like I love Kobe. That's crazy. But I, I'm an evaluative person, so I started to think about myself, and I said, what do I do for Kobe? I knew every statistic about this man going all the way back to Lower Marion High School. I picked him up when he was 14 because my brother and I, we would do scouting and we would try to find young players and we would take ownership on them because we were big on Madden and NBA. And so we would get, we play GM. So I knew every statistic on this dude going all the way back to Lower Marion High School. It was crazy. I had his jerseys. I had his shoes. I wore his name across my back and I stayed ready for a fight. Anybody who wanted to talk about the G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, don't come at me with nobody else. LeBron James, sit down. <laughs> you are a forward who can dribble. You're a big center. Don't talk to me. I remember being at Humperdinks during the games, and we would be jumping off the literal physical walls during playoff time because we were so excited. Doing chest bumps. <laughs> That's my boy Kobe. Kobe don't know who I am. <laughs> but it was so awesome. I even bought DirecTV. I saw every game. And I would get angry when they lost as if it really mattered in life. Would be frustrated, like for the whole day. Can't believe they lost. It's both the coach. It's the coach. If I was coaching, things would be different. <laughs> and God said, start there. You learned everything about him, learn everything about me. You pay money for his shoes and his clothes and for direct TV just to watch this man. Give your resources to me. This man can affect your emotional condition. Allow me to change your emotional condition. You're willing to fight for him, argue for him, to give a defense for the hope that Kobe Bryant is the greatest of all time. He said, take Paul's advice, fight for me. Fight for me because I am the GOATS. I am the greatest of all time. If you don't catch anything else, catch this. Our life is a witness to how we're capable of loving. 
And I was, it was such a gracious moment because he didn't ask me to love God like pastor loved God. He just said, look at your life, look at what you're doing, and start there. What can I do, go through, or let go of to get a deeper relationship with Jesus? The maturity is in the question. So an immature will say, what do I have to do? What do I have to go through? Or what do I have to let go of to get closer to Jesus? But when you start to get to this place like Peter did where he says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You hold the keys to eternal life. It's not a have to anymore. It's back to the original thing, like what would I do for an ounce of God because I love him? And then it becomes beautiful. Mother Teresa made this quote, and this is where we're going to end. Mother Teresa said, Suffering is nothing by itself, but suffering shared with a passion of Christ is a wonderful gift, the most beautiful gift, a token of love. You are powerful, and God has empowered you to sit in the midst of any situation and respond differently than the world responds. And when we do that, we give such a witness to who he is that they will literally inquire, asking us, who is your God? And he gets all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. And we're going to get JJM up here, and they're about to, can I say rock us out? Is that, No. My wife, she always tell me, she said, you be trying to be cool and, and be failing, <laughs> failing that test constantly. <laughs> so I'm going to pray as the band is, is getting ready to come up here and, and, and we're going to celebrate God together and then we're going to have a great rest of our day. Today is Rain's birthday. So, yes, we are. He's such an awesome man of God. I, I keep telling him, whatever the Lord uses me to do, he's going to do 10 times more with rain, maybe 100, maybe 100. Train up a child in the way they should go. When they are older, they will not depart from it. Lord Jesus, I thank you for every single person that's here today. God, I thank you that they are special, that they are powerful, that you have endowed them all with unique gifts and talents to be used for your glory and for your majesty and for your might. God, I thank you for every unique gifting and the place in society where they were called to impact, for the place in society where they were called to take dominion, to take over, for their good works to bring you glory in heavenly places. And God, I'm so grateful that we have been able to come here and worship together as one family, one family to lift you up, one family to glorify you, one family to make you the key thing, to make you the priority, to make you everything. God, I ask that you search our hearts today and that you would allow us to come to a place of honesty and transparency to where we're able to look at ourselves and to see what we're capable of. And God, I pray that each and every one of us, that we just start where we're capable and give you all of that because you deserve so much more. Your death on the cross, 
your redemption, the fact that you got up and empowered us. We just thank you, Lord. We just thank you. And God, I pray that you make a difference between us and the world, that as we go throughout these times, no matter what the world may bring, no matter what society may bring, no matter what the global may bring, no matter what governments may bring, no matter what sickness or disease may bring, that whatever situation we walk into, that we walk into it as kingdom citizens of the most high God, taking the mental authority, counting it all joy, and realizing that you have empowered us to be different, to be strong, to be mighty, to be more. And in that empowerment, God, I pray that it opens an opportunity for ministry to bring people to your love, to bring people to your grace, and to bring people to everything that you are in a greater way than it has ever been before in our lives. We thank you for being here with us. We love you. We love you. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.